Today is the first Sunday of a new season in the Christian year called Ordinary Time. Please try to contain your excitement. <laughs> um, at least try and show a moderate degree of excitement, maybe a golf clap or something. Now, honestly, some of this can be cleared up with a little bit of Latin. The word ordinary uh, comes from the word ordinal, which, which has to do with the order of service and, and the readings that are regular in a series of worship services. But still, it's hard for us to hear the word ordinary and not think boring. Uh, I remember teaching our youth about the Christian year several months ago. Started with Advent, got everybody jazzed about awaiting for the king. Then I moved to Christmas, which is such an easy one in our culture to get excited about. Uh, Epiphany, the explosion of God's mercy toward the nations. Lent, this dark delving into the sufferings of Jesus. Easter, of course, which is just one gigantic party about the resurrection. And then I mentioned ordinary time. And I kid you not, everyone just laughed. (laughs) And it was really awkward. I was caught way off guard. I wasn't expecting laughter. But here's the thing about ordinary time, and and here's why we can laugh about it a bit. Ordinary time is ironic, because on the one hand, it really is the most ordinary season of the Christian year. In Advent, we're giddy with anticipation. At Christmas, we're celebrating. In Epiphany, at least where I came from in South Louisiana, there's king cakes, and here there are baptisms. During Lent, we're fasting. In Easter, we're feasting. But in ordinary time, well, we're just living. We're adulting, as some of us call it. It's sort of like the open road of a long trip. The traffic jams are over. We've already stopped for lunch. Everybody's going to the bathroom. Now we just, hopefully, drive. Ordinary time is the Christian life. It's the long obedience in the same direction. When habits are formed and practiced, you go to church every Sunday. You read your Bible and pray every day. You go to work. You go to small group. You invite your neighbors over for dinner. And you invite the Lord Jesus into every moment of it. It's ordinary. It's life with God. Day in and day out. And so the word ordinary, I believe, is worth keeping. Because it accurately describes the way God meets with us every day. But on the other hand, nothing can be simply ordinary for the Christian. And this morning we're going to let the prophet Isaiah give us three reasons why. If you have a Bible... Turn with me to our Old Testament reading, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Why can't anything be simply ordinary for us? First reason I want us to see is that we worship an extraordinary God. We worship an extraordinary God. Look with me at the opening verse (coughs) of Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, 
I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now that last word, temple, is important. Because in all likelihood, that's where Isaiah was when he had this vision. He was in the temple in Jerusalem. And the temple was built to look like a palace, a heavenly palace. The main difference, of course, was that there was no throne and no visible king. In the place of a throne was the Holy of Holies. It was a small room where no one was allowed to go except the priest once a year. And in this room was the Ark of the Covenant, which was like the treasure box that contained the two tablets of the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses. On this box, two angels, two golden carved angels were covering it and spreading their wings over it to symbolize their protection of it. But as Isaiah looks toward the Holy of Holies and imagines the Ark of the Covenant on the inside, God gives him this astounding vision. High above it, high and lifted up, it says, is God himself, the king. And get this, the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, that in itself is impressive, but it's actually a poor translation. You'll see a footnote in your Bible by the word train. It should be translated him or seem. Think about how overwhelmingly big, huge this God is. The seam of his robe, a shoelace in modern terms. This tiny piece of fabric fills the whole temple. And then we're told in verse 2 that, that above him stood the seraphim, the angels. The Hebrew word is literally burning ones. These are not chubby babies playing harps on clouds. These angels are the stuff of nightmares. Most scholars compare, this is cool, the, the brightness of these seraphim to flashes of lightning, except these flashes never stop. They're continuous. There's no letdown. Constantly burning and forever soaring around the throne of God. <laughs> and what's more, in verse 3, they're singing? No. That's what we do, because it would be a bit too rough if we all shouted. But they're crying out. They're shouting. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, the Hebrew language <coughs> that Isaiah um, heard these voices in, it has no punctuation. So when you want to give emphasis... You don't use an exclamation point. You use repetition. You say things twice so people get the picture. Please, please don't throw me into the briar patch, right? But here's the only place in the Bible 
where something is said three times. Only place. This and when it's repeated. Three times. It's a super superlative. Holy, holy, holy. The holiest of the holiest of the holiest. There is no one like you. Not even close. And the word hosts means armies. The Hebrew word for it is still imprinted to this day on Israeli military trucks. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the all-powerful commander-in-chief of all of heaven's armies. And when they say this, the earth shakes. Look, I don't care how old and cool you are. Thunder is scary. (laughs) Not just the rumbly kind, but the house-shaking kind. When the dinner plates shift and the dog starts going crazy, that is awesome. And in your head, you know it's just water, but in your gut, you're pretty sure if you looked outside, you'd see the Death Star, right? (laughs) Now, this vision that Isaiah has, it's not a dream. Like, it's not something you wake up from and realize, oh, It's not real. No. It's an unveiling. It's reality. King Uzziah has died. The little nation of Israel feels like the political sky is falling. If only they knew. Their God, this incredibly holy, massive being, surrounded by constant flashes of lightning that never stop, He's got it under control. He can handle it. And what I want us to realize this morning is that this vision of God, this narration, this picture of heaven, it's still going on right now. As sci-fi as it sounds, on the other side of this dimension right now, as I'm speaking, God is sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, and the seraphim are praising him with fire and earthquakes. Right in front of our eyes, different dimension. (laughs) This is the God we've come to worship. And we're reminded of it every week at the table when we sing holy, 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 but we can't even fathom what's really happening. Notice that Isaiah never saw the king's face. Only the hem of his robe. And and the blinding light of the angels. But we know, especially this side of Easter, that the king's face is the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one all of heaven is worshiping. He's the one on the throne, ruling history, guiding everything toward new creation. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He's the king. He's the God in Isaiah 6. And the song that heaven sings and shouts day in and day out is all about him. That's what we find in Revelation. 
Holy, holy, holy. There is no one like you. No one in the world. No one in heaven. Not even close. We worship an extraordinary God. He is beyond imagining. And to worship him is in, in, it's this incredible privilege. Incredible privilege. So that's the first reason. And the main reason why nothing is simply ordinary. It's because God himself is extraordinary. You cannot worship him and remain the same. But there's also a second reason why nothing is simply ordinary. Not only do we worship this extraordinary God, but we live in an extraordinary world. Look again at verse 3. Here's a line in the angel's song that we shouldn't miss. The whole earth is full of your glory. But now here's the interesting thing. Glory is one of those words that we say without really pausing to think about what it means. Think about it in this very passage with these angels in verse 2. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. Two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his... You would expect it... Well, hang on. You know the ending. You would expect them to say, Holiness. (laughs) Holy. It's full of your holiness. But they don't. They say glory. So why the shift? Why the change up here? Well, we've been talking about God's holiness as his, you know, total otherness. (coughs) There's no one like him. He possesses transcendent purity and worth. It's intrinsic. It's who he is. You worship God for his power, great. You kind of want him to do something for you. You worship God for his wisdom, you'd kind of like to have some of that too. When you worship God for his holiness, you're just worshiping God for who he is in himself. But when God moves out into the earth, when he goes public, when he displays himself for the world to see, the Bible regularly calls that radiance glory. This extraordinary God, he wants to be known. So much so that he's left traces of himself, traces of his glory, his plan in the world he's made. The songwriter Andrew Peterson puts it this way, I can see it in the seas of wheat. I can feel it when the horses run. It's howling in the snowy peaks. It's blazing in the midnight sun. Just behind a veil of wind, a million angels waiting in the wings, a swirling storm of cherubim making ready for the reckoning right in front of us. I like how one of my seminary professors put it. He said we should think about God's presence in the world like a syrup-saturated pancake. Now, some of you don't know how to put syrup on a pancake. (laughs) The key is to drown it. And uh, I grew up believing the purpose of a pancake is to provide me with maple syrup. (laughs) And Mary Elizabeth and I are training our children to believe the same. (laughs) Life's too short to skimp on maple syrup. 
But just like every bite of a correctly prepared pancake is saturated with maple syrup, so everything God created is intended to give you a taste of his glory. It's intended to draw you in to Isaiah's vision. It's intended to make Isaiah's vision your own, to bring you into the courts of God. I often think about this as I'm biking in the valley. Everything I see, everything I hear, everything I smell and feel, it all comes together to be this massive, loving embrace that God wants to give me. I'm surrounded by his presence, by his glory. And this king, this all-powerful being, surrounded by flames of fire and earthquakes, he has a heart of love. Our youth are going to camp this afternoon. So, youth, let me tell you, when you're out in God's creation, when you're hiking and swimming and cooking s'mores, don't miss this. Don't take this for granted. God has surrounded you with his glory. He wants you to find him. He wants you to know him. Won't you accept his offer? Accept his embrace this week. Won't you do that? That offer stands for anyone, not just our youth. As long as cre creation lasts, God is always constantly revealing himself. He's not hiding. He's just on the other side of what's visible, more real than reality itself. He's constantly offering himself to you. If you aren't yet a Christian, won't you say yes to the king? Won't you let the clues that he's given you in the world, the traces of his glory, won't you let those lead you to him? We live in this extraordinary world. It's a world where God meets us everywhere, at any place, at any time. Because the whole earth is full of his glory, his radiance. Nothing is simply ordinary. We worship an extraordinary God. We live in an extraordinary world. And finally, we have an extraordinary calling. When we see this massive vision of God, where does it leave us? What effect <coughs> does it have on us? Well, first of all, it totally undoes us. <laughs> Isaiah says in verse 5, Woe is me, danger to me, for I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips. When we encounter this holy God, what happens is we immediately remember our failures and inadequacies our defects. Who are we to be in the presence of God? What are we doing in his courts? And our gut reaction is to run away and hide, to get out of dodge. But what does God do for us? He comes to us, doesn't he? He comes to us. He cleanses us. 
And he calls us to be part of his kingdom. For Isaiah, this meant serving God in the very way he had failed him. He had unclean lips. That means he'd spoken lightly of God with the rest of the people. He joined in their unbelief. But now God addresses that in Isaiah. He convicts him. He forgives him. He cleanses him. And he calls him. And he does the same for us. Sure, maybe we don't have a prophetic calling like Isaiah. And who would want that? If you, if you read on in the book, you'll see that Isaiah's message was rejected. Isaiah was faithful, but very few people listened to him. But you and I, whatever we're called to do, whether that's to be a teacher or an artist or a homemaker or an administrator or a craftsman, whatever we're called to do, one calling stands above them all. And that is, we are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That is the calling that resounds throughout the whole Bible. God has called us to be part of his kingdom. That is the calling that is unshakable, the one that gives meaning to all the others, whether the world looks at us as successful or otherwise. You and I are called to belong to Jesus Christ, the King. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out his disciples to heal diseases and to cast out demons. And and as it turns out, the mission goes wildly successful. The disciples come back jumping up and down saying, Lord, we did it. We told the demons to leave, and they did. We have this power. And Jesus says to them, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Great, Jesus says. I'm so glad you're doing well. I'm so glad you found your vocational sweet spot. But remember, the best thing about all of this is that you are a part of the kingdom. You're part of God's rescue operation for the world. Don't forget that. Don't lose sight of that. You've been forgiven and adopted and called. But maybe you're more like Isaiah this morning, struggling with failure. You look back on your life, and you wonder whether you've gotten it wrong. You wonder if your effort has counted for anything. I know we have a lot of people in this room struggling to discern their vocation. Know this. God is using you. You are not a spare part. You are not sitting on the bench. Everything has not been for nothing. You don't see what God has been doing with your work. That, that project that failed, that job that failed, that child who went wayward. But one day, maybe when your earthly life is over, God will give you a vision like he gave to Isaiah. He will show you his incredible majesty. He will show you his holiness and glory. And he will show you the ways your work, your labor, your love 
has impacted his kingdom forever. As the Apostle Paul says, your labor has not been in vain. So be encouraged. You are far from simply ordinary. Anyone who has been touched by the Lord Jesus Christ and forgiven of their sins and called to the kingdom is far from ordinary. You're in the service of the living God. The one whose robe alone fills the whole of creation. You're charged with significance and so is everything around you. And as we continue in our worship this morning, as we pray and sing and come to the table, remember this vision of Isaiah. It's not a dream. It's not a fiction. It's a reality. God is on his throne, surrounded by earthquakes and fire. This is the God we've come to worship. This is the God we leave to serve. And we, you and I, frail and weak and inadequate, we are the ones he enlists in his unshakable kingdom. Praise him. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.